there, there's something about offering the sacrifice where you're experiencing this from the smells and the sights and, and everything else where you come to know something about God and your sin in yourself that we don't know just by reading about it. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, where we are reading through the Bible in a year. Unfortunately, today, Matthew Wiedemann is not feeling well. So today I'm joined by AJ and AJ only. AJ, thanks for not being sick. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I'm not sick. I hope Matthew feels better soon. Well, AJ, we are starting two new books this week. And also, I'm starting to take over your role as a podcast host, so I'm going to turn this back over to you. <laughs> All right. As you mentioned, we're starting two new books today. Uh, last week, we finished Exodus and the book of Matthew. And so the reading for week eight, we'll be going through Leviticus 1 through 13 and Mark 1 through 4. So before we jump into the chapters of Leviticus, let's talk about some general comments about the book of Leviticus, some maybe high-level comments about where the book's located and just what we should expect as we read through. Yeah, so as we know, it comes after Exodus because we just read it. So it's sort of in the middle of the Pentateuch, right? So if you look at the five books, it's right in the middle. And in the very middle of Leviticus is Leviticus 16. Yeah, Yeah, 16, 16, the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. So that's really in one way, the climax of the entire Pentateuch, we might say. Um, How can someone approach the Lord and find forgiveness of sins? But I think even before that, we should probably comment on the name of the book. So I like to pronounce it uh, Leviticus because it's got the Levites, right? That's what that's indicating. So it's a priestly book, even though the Levites aren't the most talked about people in the book, and even though not all Levites are priests. So all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Uh, But the book takes its name after the Levites, and there are instructions for the Levites, the priestly Levites anyway, to uh, perform their duties. Okay, so say that again. How do you pronounce it? Leviticus. Leviticus. Yeah, it sounds like a disease, but really that's not inappropriate given that diseases are talked about so frequently in the book of Leviticus. Okay, so we've got the name down. Does that help you at all in... Um, how you would think about what's going on in the book. Because Genesis, we all think of the book of beginnings. Exodus, we think of the Exodus event. And then you get, if you say Leviticus, it's sort of like, what does that even mean? And then numbers, well, maybe you think of the number of people, census, these sorts of things. And then Deuteronomy, Deuteros, second, Namas, law, so second giving of the law. So the names help you understand what's going on in in the book. Mm. Yeah, that does help. Well, anyway, back to Leviticus, is the common people say. Actually, as everybody on the planet says. Um, we read through chapter 17, and I just want to point out a few larger features. Uh, the, the first thing that I would point out is that in Exodus, um, everything is in the book is marked by location and space. So the 
the book structure is marked out by the movement of the people going to Sinai and then departing from Sinai. Okay, so let's review. So Genesis started in Eden, yep, and then we ended up in Egypt. Yeah, it it started with the creation, new life in a garden, and it ended with a tomb in Egypt. Wow. Okay, and then we have Exodus, yep, which started in Egypt. Yes, and then ended in Sinai. Well, Correct. you move up to Sinai, move right? To Sinai. And then you depart Sinai, right? Or you prepare to depart Sinai? Yeah. I mean, so Leviticus takes place pretty much at Sinai, right? I mean, God's giving this. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Definitely in the wilderness somewhere. This is being spoken from the tent of meeting, which is a movable location. Okay. So I don't know Leviticus well enough to say. Um, I guess this is a point where I should just admit I have never studied Leviticus carefully. You could disagree with me. Okay, I agree with you. Okay. Well, at least at the very beginning, so we get through the first couple chapters in Numbers, we see they're preparing to depart. Yep. So I don't know. I just I made an assumption there. Yeah, well, that's probably not a bad assumption to make. My point is that Exodus is going to focus on location and place and movement of the people, and Leviticus is going to focus on relationships between people and between people and the Lord. Okay. People and people and the Lord. Yes. And in that, it's a call for people to live holy lives, to relate to one another well in purity, holiness, and to relate to the Lord in that way as well. So as we read, I don't know, I would assume most people would get somewhat bored in in reading Leviticus. Um, but if you actually start to imagine what all of these things would look like when it takes place, it is pretty grody, uh, very bloody. I just think if you're participating in these things, the feel, the smell, all the visuals, all of this would be really shocking. And eventually your senses might become dulled to these things because they're they're happening so regularly. Everything except for the Day of Atonement is happening, happening on a regular basis because the things that people need cleansing for happen on a regular basis. And even if it's not happening to you every day, it's happening to someone every day. And that's what the author of Hebrews points out where the priests were daily offering sacrifices, right? Um, until Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. But I, I would say probably for us who are removed from this, it would not be a bad thing for us to try to pick up on depictions of these things, either um, in pictures or movies, and try to think about the fact that real people engaged in these things. Um, so whether that's while you're watching a show about I don't know, in ancient peoples who are making sacrifices and it's just gross. Like that might be good for you to watch actually, even though it's kind of like barbaric, it it might help you get a sense of what's going on here. Right. So then I'd want to point out that for most of our reading this week, many of the sins, maybe the majority of them that are going to be atoned for are sins that are committed, committed unintentionally. So especially starting in chapter four, Aaron, before we jump into there, can you okay. explain like what what does it mean by unintentionally? Like what are what's maybe give us an example of of something. You know, is this just they didn't you know maybe they weren't aware of the law and they they did something, or was it maybe I guess what I'm getting at is it something that was done intentionally, but then they felt remorse or guilt afterward. 
Well, I think there there are multiple situations, right? So, for example, when someone commits a sin unintentionally in the command that they've broken, when it becomes known to them that they've broken it, either as an individual or a community. So that's one way of sinning unintentionally for sure. Um, But I think every time it's connected to violating one of the Lord's commands. So like chapter 4, verse 27, if any of the common people sins unintentionally, by violating one of the Lord's command, does what is prohibited and incurs guilt. So they they unintentionally do this and they feel guilty about it maybe. Or if someone informs this person that he has committed a sin. So maybe he doesn't even feel the guilt. He's not aware of it at all, but he is told that he's sinned. Um, then you present the sacrifice. And there, I think it's a good pattern that we see of confession of sin. They're to confess these things and then to make it right. Um, This clues us into the fact that God made provisions for people's failures. So sometimes we think of the Old Covenant like this harsh regime where if you do anything wrong, you're sent to hell immediately or something. That's just not the case. God, God graciously and kindly provided ways to restore relationships and to participate fully as his covenant people again. And there there was really no one who couldn't do this. So over and over again, you'll see these exceptions. If, if you can't afford this sacrifice, then do that sacrifice. And if you can't afford that one, do the next one so that all people, rich and poor, can have restored relationship with the Lord one another. Right. Some of these sacrifices call for a, a beast of the herd, and you would, could imagine that a lot of people didn't have herds to, to spare. So we just see God's mercy and grace with allowing, you know, more inexpensive sacrifices. Exactly. And then I think it's good for us to recognize that there are different categories here. Like there's clean and holy and unclean and unholy So to be unclean doesn't necessarily mean to be unholy, right? So these are complicated things. I I don't know that I have all the answers for walking through them, but I do remember that when I was at Eden Baptist Church in Burnsville, Minnesota, the pastor Dan Miller preached through Leviticus, and I just remember thinking he did a great job explaining these things and talking about them. So I'd just point you to their website, and you can listen through a whole sermon series through this entire book. Moving beyond the sacrifices, though, I'd want to talk about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, where these two guys, they're sons of Aaron, they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. I don't know what that means, but then the Lord sent fire down to consume them. They they received the death penalty, and then Aaron is not really even allowed to mourn for his sons, or else he would incur the death penalty on himself. And this is the statement that the Lord gives in response to all of this. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. I don't know if that helps us understand what they did incorrectly, but it sounds a lot like Ananias and Sapphira. God does somewhat of the same thing to them. And I think a point is made that God's holiness really does matter. So take these sacrifices and commands seriously and obey the Lord. Uh, and don't do your own thing. I don't know that we can do what John MacArthur did, which is to connect this to someone's idea of speaking in tongues and host a conference called Strange Strange Fire. Fire. I, I don't think we should probably say we need to draw a line between 
Nadab and Abihu in whatever it was they did with any form of worship that we don't like. So I don't think we should say, uh, God never commanded us to play a guitar in a worship service, so that's strange fire. So we should only do precisely what's prescribed in the Bible in our worship. I don't know that we should try to go there in because I I think that's just not clear. What is clear is that God's holiness is important, and so we need to respect that and respond appropriately. Ultimately for us, I think that means we look to Jesus as our sacrifice that gives us access to God's holiness and reveals his glory, and um, that that's what we rest in, and that's what we pursue. Can you talk a little bit about the place that faith plays in the lives of a typical Israelite? I think you're asking, are the Israelites saved through offering sacrifices apart from faith? I I think, on the one hand, you have to believe that these things are required if you're going to go through them. Um, you know, if, if you're saying, I'm just going to offer these things because everyone else is, I, I don't know that that's totally wrong because you're commanded to do it, and this is more than a plan of salvation or something like that. This is part of their covenantal life together with the Lord. Um, it's hard to know how we should view every individual who did this. Obviously, throughout the Old Testament, there are times where God says, I don't want a sacrifice. I want your heart to love me and worship me and truly repent of sin. So we can think of texts like Psalm 51, where David talks about this. Um, you don't desire sacrifice, you desire obedience. So so I don't think that we should say these sacrifices operate as something that's set apart from a person's relationship to the Lord. It's an integral part of it. And that's a very thing that's at stake here is they have a relationship to the Lord. Um, I think sometimes we try to say Roman Catholicism is this, and so we filter everything that we read in Leviticus through you know, a works-based salvation or something. I just don't know that we can do that. This is just, it's hard to know how to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they have to proceed in faithfulness to God, but this is part of the problem with the way that we translate faith and define faith and understand it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't know that you can just take faith apart from faithfulness. And these are acts of faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to them to truly remove sin and restore them. So when you talk about offering a sacrifice without faith, that's it's just hard to even have the right categories to be able to talk about these things. There, There's something about offering the sacrifice where you're experiencing this from the smells and the sights and, and everything else where you come to know something about God and your sin in yourself that we don't know just by reading about it. So for us to say someone is offering a sacrifice without faith or something like that, it's it's just hard to even get into their headspace. Something about the ritual and the experience that does something that just reading about it doesn't do. So it's hard to know what these people felt like or thought as they were doing it. I, I, I mean, would we could go buy a sheep or something. And we go. could, and and I think we would come to know something through that experience that we don't know just by watching uh, a text describe it. So yeah, I, these are tough questions when we're reading the Old Testament and trying to figure out what what do we need to do with these things, um, and especially as people who haven't studied these books at great length, 
some of those questions we'll, we just have to hang on to, and maybe that will motivate some of us on to future study. But ultimately, I just want to look at these things and say at a minimum, we should read them, even though they're kind of long and you know we have a lot of questions about them, because I think it does give us a sense of, I, I just want to get through this so we can get to Jesus, the true and final sacrifice for sin, and maybe at a minimum, it will give us a greater appreciation for who Jesus is and what he's done when we might otherwise start to become so familiar with familiar with Jesus' sacrifice that we kind of devalue it. There are different kinds of sacrifices that are listed, and um, there's probably a lot to be considered there, and I don't have enough knowledge to say anything about it, but I would recommend the Christian Standard Bible, the Study Bible Edition. I'm sure there are some great notes in there. And then today I was also recalling how great the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible is on this book. So I just quickly scanned some of those notes. I think it does a good job of connecting things to the New Testament. So I would point people to that resource as well. Now we're moving on to the book of Mark. And Josh Huber has jumped in to join us to talk about this book because he has taught on the book of Mark. Josh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here, I think. <laughs> is this what you call lying on the air? Um, yeah, or stretching the truth, maybe. Something okay. like that. Well, it's nice to have you as part of our podcast crew, especially with Matthew gone. Mm. Someone had to replace him. Yep. Now, Josh, you preached through the Gospel of Mark, mm. and you manuscripted all of your sermons and probably memorized them. So when we get to Mark 1 through 4, you probably could just uh, preach for a long time. I think I preached the, the Gospel of Mark over a course of two years, and so I think I'm more familiar with the back half of okay. those chapters than the front half. So Perfect. this is going to be really good, as you can tell. Okay. Yeah. Well, like Mark does, he jumps right in to <laughs> the narrative of Jesus. There's no genealogy, no birth narrative. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not spending mm-hmm. time there. He jumps right in with John the Baptist. Yeah, yeah, he does that, and as you can tell, when you start to read Mark, he's using the word and a lot. He's just moving from one scene to the next over and over and over again, and that's because he wants us to see, really, who Jesus is. He's not interested in the minute details that the other authors of the gospel would be, but he's interested in showing you the person and work of Jesus and just putting it in your face and basically saying, what are you going to do about it? Now, who's the audience of Mark? I don't know if we need to include this, but I was curious. I saw maybe some conflicting stuff when I that I was looking at, and it made me question whether or not I should just take what they said at face value. Do, yeah, do you remember what, what, did what, you, what did you read? What so did you read? this was kind of a what they said. It was you know Mark is making the case to a Roman audience that Jesus is mm-hmm. the suffering Messiah. Yeah, just yeah. those that concise statement. Yeah, there. the commentators I read mainly thought that he was talking to Gentile audience. Whether that's Roman or not, I don't know. But yeah, I I think it's primarily Gentile. He'll have some clarifications for those who are not aware of Jewish customs as you go through the gospel. So I think I can agree. It's it's primarily Gentile. So I I would be interested, Josh, in what your take is on why Mark has almost zero fulfillment statements Mm -hmm. and Matthew has so, so many. I'm not sure about that since I haven't studied Matthew or the fulfillment passages there. But again, with with Mark, I, I think it's more important that he just shows us who Jesus is by what he does and more than it is what he fulfills per se. Because again, 
I don't think the Gentiles are going to necessarily be as familiar with the fulfillment passages as the Jews would be. So Matthew, I think, different audience, maybe. Yeah, and that's my question, yeah. because I I thought I've always heard that Matthew was primarily to Gentiles. You mean you mean Matthew to Gentiles? That's what I think I've heard, but that's, maybe that's incorrect. I think that's what you said before on I the did. podcast, and then I was prepping for Mark, and they said that... Matthew was to the Jews. Yeah, I thought well, Aaron was to said Jews that. Too. Yeah, so <laughs> it made me question this whole author. Yeah, maybe I have it switched around in my head. I'm pretty okay. sure Mark is to Gentiles. Yeah, I yeah. for some reason I was thinking Matthew Gentiles, and that's why Matthew so regularly points out Gentiles who are coming to faith. Right, because um, we made that point. With yeah, the, the but, two. but maybe I was wrong. This is what happens when you're not a biblical scholar and you just comment <laughs> about the Bible. So. Um, well, anyway, Josh, uh, you preached this text a long time ago <laughs> because we already talked about Jesus's temptation at greater length okay. when we did Matthew. Maybe we can move on from there. But I think significantly, I'd like us to talk about Mark 1, 14 and 15, um, connecting the kingdom of God, its presence now, the gospel, and repentance and belief. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I mean, Mark will show, especially near the end, that, that Jesus is the king over the kingdom that he's inaugurated and begun here on earth. And when you get towards the end, Jesus is a different type of king as he's eventually not not rising to power with, with great glory and pomp and, and the praise of the Jews, but instead on a cross and, and crucifixion, and he's a different type of king. And that's the beginning of the ministry is repent and believe. You know, come into the kingdom through faith in the king, which is himself, Jesus. And that becomes uh, more clear as you read through the gospel of Mark, who Jesus is, as you see his actions as that of the king of the Jews, riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem, um, Mm -hmm. which fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah about the king of the Jews again. And it's about his kingdom, and really it's about following him as that king and leaving everything behind, even as he'll later call the rich man to do his disciples and everyone else that would be his disciple. Yeah, I think it's interesting that if Mark is directed towards Gentiles, the first picture of Jesus declaring the gospel is of the kingdom. Right. And ostensibly, Mark wants Gentiles to repent and believe and consider themselves under Christ's kingship. Yeah, citizens of his kingdom, not this world's or the Roman government at that time. So, so you would put Jesus's kingdom against Rome. What, what do you mean, pit them against each other? Well, you just said to see themselves as citizens of God's kingdom, Jesus's kingdom, not Rome's kingdom. Ultimately, ultimately, okay. yes. Yep. But they're, they're overlapped. Right, because, yeah. I mean, rendered to Caesar, that yep. which is Caesar's, and to God, which is God's. Okay. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people who say that, you know, the New Testament is anti-Roman imperialism, so trying to subvert Roman rule mm. or something like that. Mm. Um, kind of a new, maybe a niche of a niche of a niche of New Testament scholarship. Was, I'm just throwing listening. stuff out there. I was listening. It, yeah, uh, I, it looked like you weren't listening, to be honest, but <laughs> that sometimes happens. It does. Josh, you regularly dealt with this during your Mark sermon, but especially at the beginning of Mark... Um, Jesus makes a point for his identity to be concealed, mm-hmm. especially as he's mm-hmm. casting out demons. He he rebukes them if they speak about his identity. He's right. it seems like he's always trying to hide his identity, which is 
almost ironic because it seems like Mark is writing to reveal Jesus's identity. Mm-hmm. So can you talk us through why Jesus would tell um, demons in particular, but then others, not to spread the news about who he is? Right. And I think there's this underlining tension, well, uh, several reasons for the demons, but I think just there's this underlining tension throughout the whole narrative that the Pharisees are out to get him over and over again. You read that. And he, I think, with all the wisdom and discernment of God, is progressively revealing his identity in such a way that they cannot say, here's the king who is putting himself in opposition to Rome, because that's what they're trying to do the whole time. They're trying to pit Rome against Jesus. And at the end, they finally get that, but only when Jesus is finally ready to die on the cross. And so that whole time, there's the progressive revealing of his identity in such a way um, that doesn't allow him, his enemies, to to shoot him down before his mission here on earth is complete. Mm-hmm. And with the demons, as far as that goes, I mean, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think you really want uh, your enemy per se saying that you are the Christ and and kind of pretending they're on your side mm-hmm. and giving some sort of, hey, look, I'm with him. That, that's just not good publicity, and they were never on his side. Um, so I think there's several reasons for the demons, at least, not to to reveal his identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about a little bit later on in chapter 3, when Jesus is teaching and the scribes say that Jesus is possessed by demons right. and he yeah. warns about the kingdom divided against itself or explains. Right. Right. So, so that that explanation makes a lot more sense to me now because mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't want to be associated with these guys. He's yeah. defeating them. Yeah. Pharisees are trying to make them both one and the same. The demons are trying to kind of a little bit do that a little bit too. So Okay. So to back up a little bit then, in chapter 2, Jesus heals the paralytic man, and verse 5 says, seeing their faith. And I always mm-hmm. remember people mm-hmm. debating in the dorm about this, like, can your faith... Um, contribute toward the salvation of another person. Is this something that's actually worthy of even discussing, or does it just distract from what's going on in, in the account? Um, I, I got to go back and look at my notes there, man. That's It's a good question, but in saying their faith, at a minimum, it does show that the friends possess just as much faith as this paralytic did in Jesus. Um, so I, I think it's collective. I mean, it, it no doubt includes his friends and him too, so I don't think you have to say their faith saved him. I think their faith is inclusive of his faith in Jesus. Okay. So if that makes sense. It does. Mm-hmm. So then moving on to the next account in chapter 2, Jesus is eating with the tax collector Levi and a bunch of sinners mm-hmm. um, and his disciples. And there are people who are pointing this out and saying that it's negative, right? Mm-hmm. The Pharisees mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. see this and um, are asking the disciples why Jesus is doing this. And Jesus responds by comparing himself to a doctor who's come not for the, the healthy, but for the sick. And he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, should we understand that the righteous don't need Jesus, <laughs> uh, but uh, that they are fine on their own, but really only sinners need Jesus, and there are some who are not sinners? who is righteous but the one who puts his faith in the Messiah, Jesus. And I don't think he's saying there's righteous people here and there's sinners here. Everyone's truly sin. It's just whether or not you you understand yourself to be a sinner. And and I think here, when you continue to read over and over again, that's clear that we're all guilty. Um, but I think that's what you eventually have to come to the conclusion of that we're all sinners. There's no one righteous apart from those in Christ. 
Yeah, so it's probably just some good rhetoric Jesus is using to not declare to the Pharisees that they are truly well and not in need of the doctor, but they're sick and they don't know it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he does in the parable of the prodigal sons down the road, right? I mean, the older brother views himself as righteous. He, you know, I haven't done anything like this younger son, but in the end, he is just as much a sinner as the younger son as it's revealed at the end. So I think that as you go through Mark, you'll, you'll see that there is no one righteous. They're all sinners in dire need of the Father's love and mercy. So some people will read this text and um, draw a parallel between Jesus's meal with the sinners and tax collectors uh, with the Lord's Supper, arguing for an open table oh. <laughs> for anyone, righteous or unrighteous, sinful or not um, converted to Christ or not, should we allow Jesus's welcome of what it seems like anyone to eat with him to influence our view of the Lord's Supper? I mean, I don't think you can take this passage here and apply it because you need to go to the, the passages actually where Jesus talks about the Lord's Supper. This is not a prime one. This is just a general meal. Um, but in the Lord's Supper, when he does talk about it, he talks about it as a, a new covenant meal, right? This is the new covenant in my blood. And those who are part of that are those who place their faith in Jesus. So in that regard, I think at a minimum you have to say uh, the meal is for those who are in that new covenant through faith in Christ. I think you have to say that at a minimum. So I don't think this passage is applicable to that, uh, taking this that's not connected to the Lord's Supper down the road where he begins with the disciples. So in the next account, the Pharisees have just pointed out that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors and now there are individuals who are pointing out that John's disciples fast while Jesus's eat. Um, what do you make of this situation here? And um, when Jesus says that when the, the groom is there, you shouldn't mm -hmm. be fasting, you should mm -hmm. be celebrating. Right. But the, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. What do you think that's referencing? I have a couple ideas that maybe are just really half-baked that I want to run by you, but I'd like to know, know what you think. Can you, can you give me the passage here I'm looking for? Uh, Mark 2, verse two, 20. 2 and 20. And talking about the groom? Yep. Yeah, I, I'm thinking that when Jesus is talking about his disciples not fasting, I mean, he gives the analogy of the bride and the groom, and you, you don't fast until, you know, the groom's taken away. He's referencing himself. Like, mm -hmm. how, can you, how can you be fasting and, you know, devote, you know, depriving yourself of food when there's cause for celebration. I'm still here. It, it'll be time for that eventually when I'm gone, you know, referencing his ascension, resurrection ascension. And so then he gives that analogy of the wine skins, and it's just not fitting to, to be fasting when I'm here, which is cause for celebration. Um, so I think that's what's going on on there. Is that what you... Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I'm trying to work out is when he says the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast on that day. Mm. Because I've, I've been kind of working on this theory a little bit. For fasting? That, that Jesus intended for the disciples to partake in the Lord's Supper after his death instead of hiding away and being fearful. Is this like a negative prediction about them fasting? Or is this a positive prediction? It's sort of what I'm trying to tease out a little bit. <laughs> so you're connecting this to after he dies, yep. when the bridegroom's taken away, yep. and you're saying that that's when they should be fasting? No, I'm saying that he, is this a negative prediction? Like they're going to do this? Yes. Um, yes. Because after he ascends, 
the church is breaking bread from house to house. Yeah, There's no yeah. fasting going yeah, on there. Right, right. Um, so is this like a prediction of Jesus early on saying, my disciples will fast like they're in mourning yeah. um, when really they should be feasting on the Lord's Supper because that's how I'm present with them. Mm-hmm. So I've gone, a, I, I gave the Lord's Supper to them before I departed so that my presence would be with them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an interesting thought. I haven't connected the two at all before. Me either. I'm, that's why it's a half-baked idea. Well, I haven't read any commentaries that suggested that either, based on what I can remember, but okay. that, that would be interesting to, to try to, uh, maybe a biblical theology on, on that right yeah. there. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. that. That is an interesting thought. And this is what good podcasts are made of. <laughs> half-baked ideas and agreement. At the end of chapter 3, Josh, Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters, apparently. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that Jesus had sisters, and there are some manuscripts that omit that line. Um, but Jesus' family, apparently, is asking for him. Mm-hmm. And Jesus replies by saying, who are my mother and my brothers? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he identifies those who do the will of God as his family. Mm-hmm. Um, what should we make of this? Is Jesus being a jerk to his family? Oh. And... <laughs> Would we say that Jesus' mother doesn't do the will of God? He's setting up, really, the church as the family of God here as he begins to explain. This is, like, revolutionary to to the Jews, I think. And so when he's talking about who is truly a part of his family, God's family, as as the Christ, um, I think he's just introducing this revelational idea. It's those, those who follow God, who do the will of God. You're a family, and you're together one with me, and... Um, I think that's revolutionary. Whether or not he's being a jerk to his family, um, they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And in some ways, they're kind of trying to hinder his work, what God's called him to do. So I don't think he's being a jerk to them, but he's he's using them as an analogy to show people who, who are truly those in line with God. Now, have you ever said this to someone when they've said, hey, Josh, your your wife and kids are looking for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, I have never said this, nor am I Jesus with all the divine authority from God. Joshua. I mean, your name is sort of (laughs) pretty close. Well, let's not get them mixed up. I am not Jesus. Okay. (laughs) That's my wife. Well, it does does seem like there is a transition here in in chapter 3 where Mark is making this distinction between the followers of Jesus, like mm-hmm. you were saying, and then those who oppose him. You know, even his family is included too. They don't really know who he is or they think he's crazy. The religious leaders, they want to kill him. You know, his hometown rejects him. The people that you'd think would be the closest to Jesus, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, really aren't, they're rejecting him. Yeah. I think it's interesting that so far in Mark, in Mark 1 through 3, um, you essentially have Jesus describing the kingdom through his interactions with people, both in casting out demons, in healing, in um, exercising authority in his teaching and over the Sabbath. Um, But now, as we get to chapter 4, he shifts from uh, describing the kingdom through the experiences and circumstances that he's encountering to parabolic teaching. Uh, So I don't think that we should overlook that. I think sometimes we might say, Jesus doesn't start to demonstrate what the kingdom is until chapter four, but in reality, he's done it all the way. And I think that last account where Jesus talks about who his true family is, he's talking about the people of the kingdom, the kingdom citizens, Mm -hmm. and that acts as a bridge then into his direct teaching. 
um, that some might say is indirect because it's in parables mm-hmm. and it's not clearly articulated. You, you might want Jesus to say the kingdom of God is blank, but instead he teaches the secret of the kingdom in parables. The first parable, Josh, is the parable of the sower. Um, what do you make of this? How does this factor into questions like, um, can I lose my salvation? And what does it mean to be included in God's kingdom? Yeah, I, I think that as you look at this parable, it should question, it causes you to question what is true salvation look like. Um, I think so often we're concerned about this losing our salvation rather than really looking at the question, what does true salvation look like? And then in this parable, I think it shows us true salvation looks like bearing fruit. It, it looks like persevering. It looks like not falling away uh, into the cares of this world as uh, the thorns and the thistles and the birds of the air come and take the seed. Um, so I think in that regard, as you look at this parable, it shows what true salvation looks like. It's fruitful. It multiplies. And there's abundant fruit as as the seed, God's word, takes root in your heart, and it continues to bear fruit over and over. Um, so I think this sheds light on what true salvation looks like, as opposed to those who look like they may have received it, but then fall away and in and, and recognition, just knowing that they were never saved in the beginning. So it's a hard parable. That yeah, many. I think probably, I might be wrong, but I think a wrong question to ask is, from this parable, can you have assurance of salvation or something like that? Because I don't mm-hmm. think that's what Jesus is getting at. Mm-hmm. I think the right question is, how should I live as a kingdom citizen? And that's to put down roots that go deeply into the gospel and into Jesus, mm-hmm. because that's where the source of life is from. And I think Jesus is trying to direct people's attention away, really, maybe from their own confidence or sense of self-righteousness or something to rely on him for life. Um Mm-hmm. I don't know what you make of that. Yeah, and even as you think about this, we all have those weeds that can spring up in our life, those thorns, the cares. The world. I mean, we're all tainted to a certain degree. We're not one pure soil that doesn't have these things happen to us. Um, and I think it's a warning. It's a warning for us if the cares of the world are choking out the word, you know, then root them out by God's grace, flee those temptations. And like you were saying, dig yourself deeper into the, the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, Josh, if you were ever to do a a mini-series in the Gospel of Mark, this is what I would really enjoy hearing you do. I would enjoy hearing you taking this parable Mm. and summarizing it, and then each week identifying a character that Jesus interacted with in the book of Mark (laughs) who connects to someone, yeah, who connects to the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things that keep them from the kingdom. What you see? What you see? Yeah, I don't recall them off the top of my head, but I bet we could find at least one individual who represents each of those categories. Yeah, that would be interesting. I'm, I, the one I'm trying to think of is like the the one where the birds of the air come and take it. That's the one I'm not necessarily sure about. But yeah, well, I, yeah. I think, you know, this is shooting from the hip here. <laughs> and I know we would disagree with this. I, I think it's the one where there's the, the widow who, who thinks that she is receiving the truth <laughs> about God's kingdom and worshiping the Lord when uh, really she's been duped by the Pharisees and she gives herself to that and she's taken away. That's that's interesting. So that's Satan then? Because isn't that... The Pharisees, the temple system that is so corrupted. Uh, yeah. I'm just making this up because mm-hmm. I know we disagree mm-hmm. on that point. And I, <laughs> I know a good podcast is made with disagreement. Oh, and we've fun. been too congenial here. 
Wait, that's you're, that's that's not chapters one through four, so we can't we can't get there yet. You're right. Well, we we'll, we look forward time. to having you on the podcast <laughs> down the road. All right, AJ, what did you observe <laughs> in Mark one through four that you wanted us to talk about? I mostly just noticed different literary devices. There's irony. There's like I said, the authority. You know, it seemed like those things were popping out because Mark was being intentional about those things, and I I like to grasp onto those. I'm looking forward to, to next week. We see things start to really intensify. Sometimes he'll take a story that Matthew also tells, and Matthew will say it in 100 words, but Mark will take 400 words to say that same story, even though the, the gospel itself is shorter, because he, he's adding these elements, he's mm-hmm. adding drama to it, and I think that's that's helpful and that's instructive to, to what he's trying to communicate. Yeah, I think paying attention to those literary devices is really important. I think it's important to pay attention to the order of the accounts, and maybe that's a good synoptic study is um, how do the Gospels authors arrange their accounts differently, and what should we make of that? You know, By doing so, they're highlighting things, and, and other things are being a little bit more hidden. So Josh, as we conclude our thinking about the Gospel of Mark, what are some tips for reading the Gospel of Mark that you would want our audience to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be looking for comparisons and contrasts between characters within the story. Look for sandwiches where there is... Um, he sandwiches is this the idea. feast that Jesus had with the tax collector and sinners? <laughs> no, where, where one story begins, Mark interrupts it and then ends it, because normally when he sandwiches it, that they're, the idea in the center is somehow connected to the beginning and ending of that story. And he does this masterfully, uh, several times, once with a, a fig tree. Um, I think another time with, uh, I have to double check, blind person maybe, I have to, I have to double check that one. Yeah, um, Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Um, so be looking for comparisons, contrast, read large large chunks of Mark at a time. He wants you to get through this all at once. It's short enough, and you'll you'll pick up more of these, these the colors that he intends for you to get as you read larger sections of Mark and not just a chapter at a time. Nice. What is your hot take on the Gospel of Mark that nobody else agrees with you on. <laughs> my, my, uh, what is my most controversial view? Yeah. Uh, that's that's a good question. I'll have, to, I'll have to think about that one. I'm trying to remember where I took a minority view on something. You can tell us next week when you're also yeah. going to be on this podcast. For next week. Okay. Well, Matthew will be away in Florida, <laughs> yep. so. Um, oh, boy. Okay, well, while you're thinking about that, what's your least controversial take on the Gospel of of Mark. Oh, that's easy. Um, that's the the widow. As, um, <laughs> I thought you were going to thing. just say that Jesus is the Son of God. That shouldn't be too controversial, but it was controversial within the story. Yeah, you know, you got those JWs and stuff like that. Okay. So. Yeah. But no. What does JW stand for? The Jehovah Witnesses. Okay. Well, you've ordered one of the most difficult questions, which I'm thankful you didn't ask, and because uh, I don't have a good answer. Maybe you should raise it. Uh, chapter four, verse twelve. I mean, I think that was one of the more difficult texts to work through, and I carefully scripted my explanation of it. I remember that in the sermon prep, but um, I don't remember what I said. <laughs> oh, why Jesus yeah. uses parables. Yeah, yeah. I remember you talking about that, and I liked your answer. I can't remember what it was, though. That's the problem, so I have to go yeah. back and look at it. Okay, well, all of Mar- all of Josh's sermons <laughs> through the Gospel of Mark are on our website, at www.resurrectionmn.org backslash sermons. Wonderful. Thank you for that shout out. I appreciate it. It's a a little plug for you. Yeah. 
Well, thank you guys both for being here, especially Josh. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org. I would want to say about that thing. <laughs> Hear an impression. Yeah. I'm sure that's just verbal clutter that I've picked up from somebody somewhere. Verbal clutter. Yep.